handle the truth. What is going on, everybody? What is going on? Welcome back. Saturday night cell block. How's everybody doing? I pray that everybody is blessed, safe, and sound. Your bellies are full and that you guys are comfortable, man. We got a great show tonight. Great, great show. So I have a dear friend of mine, very good friend that I just recently met that is getting him a nice cup of coffee for this story that he's going to sit down and and uh, fill us with, man. We, we got a great story tonight. So this gentleman's name is, is Chuck, Chuck Keach. Chuck Keach spent a little bit of time incarcerated. I'm going to let Mr. Keach get into, into all of that. But today's discussion is essentially going to be uh, Mr. Keach's life, what he's had going on with his life, what he's doing now, and the fact that he's sitting here in this chair with us. So go ahead and introduce yourself, good sir. Well, thank you, Thomas. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me on your show this evening. Absolutely. Thank you for um, blessing And I want to thank everybody out there for logging in and watching the show this evening. My name is Chuck Keach. Um, I recently turned 57 years old. Um, so 40 years ago, 1983, Jacksonville, Florida, I got involved in a burglary um, with three other individuals. Uh, two of those individuals killed two people, stabbed them to death. And because I was involved in that crime, this, the law in the state of Florida, it's called felony murder, made me just as guilty as them. I was facing the death penalty at the age of 17. Um, later on, they offered me a deal, and I took two mandatory 25-year-to-life sentences to get out from under that. And I spent 38 years in prison. I've been out a little over a year and a half now. And life's never been better. <laughs> I know that's right. So 38 years in prison. So this is the discussion. We're just going to break that down. Um, I've had a several several shows on felony murder. So for my, for my listeners from the beginning, <clears throat> felony murder is not uh, new to you. For those that it is new to, felony murder is an issue. And we're going to explain why it's an issue, but there are many individuals who are stuck in prison under many different scenarios because of felony murder. And you have several states that apply felony murder. Florida is one of them. Michigan is another. So in the case of Demel Dukes up there, you know, felony murder. And the, with his case, the trigger man was 17 years old. Right. And Demel was 18 years old. Well, the trigger man got out of prison. The actual murderer got out of prison because he was charged as a juvenile. Right. Well, Demel Dukes was in the back room. Same thing. It was a store robbery. Mm. Trigger man killed the, the store man. Right. And Demel was in the back, got caught for felony murder. So he's still in prison while the actual murder is home. Well, see, the state of Florida's law is actually completely opposite because when they charge you with felony murder, even though you're a juvenile, the law allows them to automatically adjudicate you without a hearing, okay? To charge a juvenile with an adult crime, normally you have to give them an adjudication hearing. Right. All the evidence has to be brought up, and then you 
wait for the judge to make a decision on whether you'll be charged as a juvenile or charged as an adult. With the Florida statute 78204, it automatically allows them to circumvent that and just automatically charge you with first-degree murder. Once they do that, they, that, you're adjudicated. It's one of those things that I studied right off the bat, you know, once I went to prison because, you know, as everybody wants to, you know. I Did think you get I, him? No, I didn't get him. He flew. I'm Man, that sucker, he, he, he's good. He's, I've been trying to he's catch very him elusive. all day. So, I mean. Uh, you know, he'll drive you nuts, too. It's probably a. Uh, uh, Made me feel like I was back in the cell block again, chasing gnats. You know what I think that I, I always think that it's a deceased relative, man. Some just a somebody from down the line. Yeah, you aggravated just, them, and they're here to aggravate you. Yeah, back, they're huh? just playing with me. You know, yeah, they're laughing yeah, at yeah, me right, or whatever. Right, right, you know, right. that's I like to think right, that. Yeah. But so let's get into that night, man. Let's get into because there's a lot of parents out there, my mine included, who has children that went wayward. And that happened mm -hmm. to be my thing as a child was B&E's. I was doing it. I was breaking right. into people's sure. houses at 12, 13, 14 years old. Well, 13, 14, breaking into people's houses and 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 stealing their things, you know, regardless if people were home or not. And I, that wasn't a thought of mine. I was just going into people's houses. So No. Well, you're a little bolder than I was. Like that that night with that burglary was because I was with those three guys. Um one of them had the key to the house because he knew the people at the house. Um, they even called ahead of time to make sure they were going to bed before we went into the house. So in, in one sense of the, of the essence of things, I was more guilty than some of the guys, say like Eddie, okay, or my friend Taylor who was just in a car when uh, a dope deal went bad and a guy got shot in the head mm. on, their way, on their way out, okay? He didn't know anything about it, but still ended up with a mandatory quarter life sentence. Um, he was like, I think he was 18 when he caught his. Mm -hmm. um, he did like 28 years on his. He's out and doing really good now. But the thing is, they, they don't, or at least they didn't, they didn't differentiate when it came to that law. Okay. There was a stretch of time. It almost became political. Um, that the prison system in Florida, if you looked at it, the majority of the life sentences that were given out were given out to black guys. Mm -hmm. So they went on this run back in the 80s. Anybody that didn't have any influence, white guys, if you went up and you got charged like this, you were going to prison. Okay, And they really loaded it up. I mean, I met a lot of guys, and I know a lot of guys from just before the time I came in to the time I came in and all those years that I did that fell in that same circumstance. And it didn't matter what you did. Um, my own lawyer, when I met him for the first time, I was a juvenile in juvenile detention at what they called the pea farm in Jacksonville because they had to keep us separate from the adults first time I met him, I went into this room, I sat down, and he said, hi, my name is so-and-so, I won't mention his name, because mm -hmm. he's a judge now. Mm -hmm. um, but he turned a piece of paper around on the table and slid it over to me. And he says, I don't know how much we can, how free we can be with what we say on the show, but 
I just wouldn't say anything that that could incriminate you. No, 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 no. Basically, what he did. If if we're gonna t- be talking about anybody else, it just no, I'm has talking to about be... like cussing at a low level. Oh, I mean, you know, however, feel good. man. Okay, listen, so listen. basically, he turned this piece of paper around, slid it across the table for me, set a pen down in front of me, and he said, "You need to sign that, or they're gonna fry your ass." This is exactly this is what my lawyer told me, right off the bat, and I'm like. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, I didn't kill anybody. And you're 17. Yeah. And and was your parents with you? You know, um, okay, so I grew up on the streets in Rochester, New York. My mother married my stepfather. There was nine of us kids. I was the eighth of nine. Mm. So I've, I've basically seen that a lot of the stuff that I did growing up, I was doing to get attention because I wasn't getting it at home. Right. And... I met my my biological father for the first and only time when I was about five, and then he passed away the next year. My mother, her way of trying to fix the situation was to push me at my stepfather. I remember her going like, okay, here, Chucky, kiss your dad goodnight, and handing me to my stepfather, okay? And in my mind, I'm thinking, you're not my dad. Right. My dad's dead. You know, I didn't know how to articulate those kind of things. We weren't taught in my family... To express your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, and things of that nature. You were to do what you were told to do, shut up, be seen, and not heard. Mm. So that kind of started me off on this path. I started running away from home at an early age, um, stealing out of stores. Um, I used to hang out with a lot of hippies and ex-Vietnam vets. Mm-hmm. Um, man, when I was eight, nine years old, you know, so like I was a full, full-blown into smoking pot. Um, drinking beer and stuff like that by the time I was 11 and hanging out on the streets. And my stepfather couldn't stand it. Um, he basically kicked me out when I was 13. My mother had to give custody of me to the state in New York. I stayed in a juvenile detention for, uh, let's see, I went there March 13th of 1980, stayed 17 months and nine days, went to a halfway house of theirs, didn't last a week, was back on the streets, got caught, for an attempted burglary, sent back to Berkshire, was there about eight more months, and then I took off again. And it was probably a little more than a year before I committed the crime I did when I came down to Jacksonville, trying to live with my mother. So we never really had this great relationship, okay? Mm -hmm. She tried. Uh, She tried so much, which kind of blew my mind, was that when her ex-husband Phil brought me down here with her, he had had me show him a place in Rochester where he could buy weed at. So I showed him, and he bought weed. I didn't know he was bringing it down here, and then him and my mom were sitting on the couch rolling up a joint to smoke it, and then she passed it to me, you know? So she she was, was trying. Right. I was too far gone by then. I, I didn't trust anybody or anything, man. You know, anybody that was an authority figure to me, was I just couldn't trust them. And how old were you then? Uh, I was still 16. I turned 17 there in Jacksonville. And then three months later, yeah, three months later was when we And what year was this? 1983. 1983 in Jacksonville. Yeah. That's a rough area then. That whole... Oh, I was in the worst area of town. That whole area. See, so the, the, the case that I'm working on, John Merritt was up there at that time mm-hmm. with the people that he was running with, kind of just doing the same thing up in the Five Points area. Yeah. Is where he was from. Yep. Um, and, and John Merritt, of course, is the guy that I'm, I'm advocating for now. So, okay. 1983 Jacksonville, 16 years old. 
Yeah. Well, I just turned 17. I, I was trying to stay at the, my mom and him had a trailer with my sister, Tammy and my brother, David lived there with him. David was a year younger than me. Tammy a year older than me. Um, I didn't have anything to do. It was like in the sticks. So I ended up meeting this girl named Beth Ann, followed her and her family into the city, was hanging out on the streets, but it was, it wasn't anything like where I was from. Mm. Where I was from, I knew where I could go maybe get some dope, deliver something for somebody and get paid for it, hustle up some kind of money some way. I didn't know anything like that in Jacksonville. You know what I mean? So I went like two, three weeks. And when you say dope, you mean? Pot mostly. We, yeah. um, like, you know, back then there was still acid. Um, some people would like, some of the dealers that I knew would send me like to the health food store mm-hmm. and I would buy those big bottles of the pink hearts or, you know, the, the, the footballs or whatever for them and bring it back to them. You know, it was kind of funny cause you pay like back then you were paying like five ninety nine for a bottle of things that had a thousand in them and they were shooting them off for 50 cents a piece. Mm. But that's the kind of thing I was doing. And so there was like a two, three week stretch of time where I hardly had eaten anything. I was homesick I mean, I was, I was around people that cared nothing for me because I was from up north, you know, as far as I was, they were concerned. Yeah. You know, I was this northerner that was in. You're a tourist. That's right. Okay. I'm right. impeding on their territory. That's right. Um, and they treated me that way. That's right. Um, so it wasn't anything for me that uh, I met one of my co-defendants, friend David, first. And he actually paid me a few bucks to do a couple odd jobs for him. And then uh, I ended up meeting Donald through him. Then I met Eddie and Pat through him, through through uh, Donald. And then Pat and I hung out a little bit. Pat was the youngest of us. He was only 16. He was from Chillicothe, Ohio. He had run away and come down here, and he was living with Eddie. And uh, basically one night he said, hey, man, he said, I got the key to this house. We're going to do a burglary, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, oh, that's it. That's my shot, you know? So I start talking to him about it. He says, well, well, Eddie's got this final say in things. He said, basically, we're going to go and take a bunch of stuff and leave. I said, okay, well, I want to get in on it. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking if I can get 100 bucks, I can get a Greyhound bus ticket. I'm, I'm You're home. just looking to eat. Yeah, and go home. Right, yeah. okay. Um, so we get all get together. He says yes. Um, and then he makes this statement about, well, when we go in the house, we're going to kill these people. I'm locked in. Why? You know the code. You know what I mean? I done said I want to do this. Now, with my words, I done locked myself in. Mm-hmm. So instead of backtracking and saying, well, I don't know about that and letting common sense rule the sev- you know, the time, I went, oh, that ain't nothing. I can do that. But why? Why did you feel that you were locked in because you gave your word? that's just how I've always been. When I give my word about something, I do it. You know what I mean? It's kind of stupid. I got a few scars from doing that. A couple on my head and other things like that. Because I said I would do something as stupid as it was and still went ahead and did it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, time has taught me better. <laughs> Especially in prison. You know, because you had to learn. You know, you give your word in prison. You don't follow through with it. You're going to die. Simple as that. How many times have you reflected and just wished... That kid would have just, no, nah, I'm not in. A million. 
I mean, how many times over 38 years was I sitting in my bunk at night talking to myself going, all you had to do was say no, you know, all you, you know, I don't think, I don't think I would have went and said something to somebody about it. You know what I mean? But, you know, I've told myself, man, all you had to do was say was no, no, that doesn't make any sense. But because of, of my arrogance and, and, and my pride, I said, yes, I said, I can do that. So the next night we all got in Eddie's car. We drove over to that part of town. Um, I've since Googled it since I've been out. I found some articles on it. They call it murder house. Nobody will, it's like. Nobody will buy it. No. It's a dead, no, dead. Yeah. Anytime you pass by, that's what they call it. Um, but we went in two by two. Um, Eddie and Pat went in first because they had the key. Me and Donald went in behind them. I guess part of me, I'm the whole time I'm thinking this can't be real. You know what I mean? Because it's like surreal. Um, I wouldn't put it as deep as like one of those movies where you see the dude like floating over the yeah. ground and no, you're you in know, the you're in the element. Possessed. You know what's going on. You're in the element, but you're just hypersensitized. It's like time. There is no time. It stood still. It it yeah. was. There is no time. You know, like in the background, I'm hearing the traffic in the background, but I'm in a bubble. Right. Yes. You know, and it's like not affecting me because my brain's trying to process this thing. You just, you know? yeah. And so we go in the house. Mm. Um, We kind of get the lay of it. And you, did you, did you ever feel like they were just playing around or did you know that they were serious? No, see, that's the thing, right? When we went into the house, I still wasn't sure. It was like, we were looking around and stuff and I'm telling them, look, there's this stuff and we can grab this stuff and boom, we can get out of here. And that's when Eddie turns around and he says, no, they got to die. He's the oldest of us. He was 19 at the time. And so he tells um. Once we, we understand that she's in this room up here in the front across from this other room. He's in the back in room. It's brother and sister. They're older, 50 and 52. Um, he tells Donald, you go watch the dude. Stand outside the door in case anything happens. He tells Pat, go in the kitchen. Get me a knife. Pat goes into the kitchen and he comes back and he's got this steak knife. And this is when it's really starting to hit because... Eddie tells him, no, it's not big enough. You need to get a bigger knife. So Pat goes back into the kitchen and he comes back with a knife that's about this long. It's just a longer steak knife, but it doesn't have the edges that the shorter one has on mm -hmm. it. And he hands it to Eddie. Eddie says, you go with Donald. Keep an eye on him. Chuck's coming with me. So he gets up and he starts towards her room. I'm like behind him. Like right when we get to the doorway, I happen to look down and there's a purse sitting by the door. So I pick up the purse and I go back to the living room because we got like a duffel bag with this. I turned back around and I was like froze. I just couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. All I saw was Eddie's silhouette. It was like dark, but I could see the darker against the dark, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And it was like... He was standing there like 
making these movements like he was unsure. And then he disappeared. He just like dropped. And then I heard the sounds of the struggling. And along with that, I mean... Do you think in that moment he was pumping himself up? That's what he was doing. He was, you know... Adrenalizing himself. Kind of like me saying I would go along with it. Now he's saying to himself, I done said I gotta, I'm going to do this. Now I got to do this. Okay? He found himself in the same position as I did with saying I would go along. Now he's in the position where he said, I have to do this, so I have to do this. It's too late. That's it. You guys, all no you guys No turning felt, back. That's what I was just going to say. All you guys felt like there was no turning back. No turning back. It's almost like once it got started, it was like a, a wrecking ball going down the hill. You weren't stopping it. And all anybody had to do was just say, man, let's get out of here. So he went in the room. Yeah, I was standing in the living room. Uh, the closest I can say is if you take if you take a steak knife, my mom did this a couple of times with a cold chicken. She would set it up on the on the um counter mm-hmm. and she would take the knife and she would like put it into it and start <laughs> and that same sound was what I was hearing. He stabbed her over thirty five times, thirty six, thirty seven times. That's and, a horrible sound. And I heard every one of them. Every time he did that, it was like something left me. What do you mean? It's just, I don't know. It was like getting a blow to the head. It was, I just got a little more deflated every time until. You knew what those sounds were. Yeah. He was taking her life. And and I felt helpless to do anything about it. And she wasn't screaming or. I could hear her struggling. I know that he had put her put his hand over her mouth, and he was he was stabbing her in the throat, bro, and upper chest region. I saw the reports. I never saw the bodies. I told him cover her with a sheet. I don't want to see it. I know I'd have nightmares for the rest of my life if I saw that. And it was like I don't know. It seemed like forever. And he came out of the room, and he had blood all over him. He had the knife in his hand, and I said the first thing that came to mind: I gotta go. I can't stay here. He looked at me, looked down at himself, and he said, you ain't going nowhere. Sit down. He's a changed man now. I sat down, and I knew he was changed. At that moment, I knew he would kill me just like he killed that woman right there. Mm-hmm. And he would probably enjoy it because he looked like he had. He's in a whole different state of mind at this time. Yep. I mean, I've heard that for some people doing that is like a power trip, the ultimate power trip. Okay. It empowers them. I can understand that by what I saw after that. So he went to the back and he, and he brought Pat up and he told Pat, don't let him go nowhere. Stay here with him. And then he left and he went back to where Donald was. And it wasn't long before we heard the same sounds coming from the guy's room that were coming from mm-hmm. Ann's room. And it was the same effect. I mean, I sit here and I talk to you about it. And I still see it in my mind as if it was yesterday. I mean, it's it's something I'll never forget, okay? Mm-hmm. It's taken me a long, long, long time. I'm not going to say... 
I try very, very, very hard not to say anything that trivializes what their lives meant. Of course. Okay. Because yeah. there's value to human life. I'm trying to remember. I heard somebody once said it was a convict I knew or something. And he made a statement one time and he said, Sometimes people just need killing. I'm sorry, it's it's the it's the character from Sling Blade, Carl. Mm-hmm. And he said, sometimes people just need killing. Oh. I've never been able to think along those patterns. But I think it's because of what I went through that night. Um, I don't think, I don't think, like you talked about the other side of the felony murder rule, right? There's another side to it that's not considered. And you were talking, when we were talking earlier this evening about the the, the police mm-hmm. and this persona that they put out. And they're more than happy when we stick our face out there and we say, oh yeah, I'm changed and this, that, and the other thing, and, and it helps them. Right. But they're never considering that at the onset. No. Right. They do so to a certain extent now. Because they have the new juvenile laws in place, especially where murder is concerned. Okay, um, I wasn't a benefactor of it because they drug it out enough that I got denied at every turn, and but they did did eventually parole me because of it. Okay, but what we did that night, I'll always be responsible for. That was the first thing I had to come to grips with. Sometimes I say. It was almost a blessing to get that life sentence the way I did. Because I couldn't, I've seen guys go through 30, 40 years in prison and they've convinced themselves that they didn't do what they did. Right. And let's face it, you've met guys like that. They're I, basically out of their minds. I absolutely have. And, and I... In in the in in my line of work, you know the criminal case reviews. I you know I get I get reached out by these women, um, family members, who uh, want me to review these cases. And these are some of the the questions I ask: is is how convinced that he is innocent are you, or is has he just because we're but that's what I, I try to get people to understand. We're in there for years upon years upon decades upon decades, and all we have is time to think. And like you say, people will will mold their stories around the loopholes to, to claim their innocence. Right. And then they'll actually believe it in their mind. And once you believe something in your mind, then you can convince the world of it because you believe it. So you're going to be convincing. Right. You know, and they'll take these family members and and these women that they meet, and they'll spend thousands of dollars on them just to be found that no, everything that they said was a lie. You know, so, and I get it. You know, they they become mad and they mad, and it's like I explained to them, it's it's not his fault. No, the you know, time does that to you. It's a, I, it's you it's know, unexplainable. It is to 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 try to explain how. That experience can warp your mind. You have to fight against it. 
I every mean, day you have to. I still remember being, because I went through the corrections transition program, the CTP at, at Everglades Correctional Institution. I was one of the few cases where I was there for 12 years. It's supposed to be a transition program where you go for about two years mm -hmm. and then they parole you out. I was one of those off cases where I ended up in there and, but probably I'd been there about maybe three years, I think it was. Um, and, and I came as close to a total breakdown as you can come in life. I mean, I remember it well. I thought I was going to lose my mind because I'd been there for that amount of time and seeing guys come and go, getting paroled and everything else. They set me off five more years um, because they could do that because my parole date was so far out there at the time. It was like 2043. And it's like, no matter how hard you try, you know, the reality is like a hammer to your head. You know, it's telling you, look, man, this is what it is. You know, you need to face up to these facts. Don't dream. Don't don't look ahead. Right. You've been doing this. Keep doing this because right. that's what's gotten you through each and every day. Right. Don't change your routine up on me. You're driving me nuts doing this. You know, that's what you're saying to yourself. This is exactly what you're saying yeah. to yourself. And it's like, keep it together, T. Yeah. Keep it together, yeah. man. Yeah, you know, because you know that routine's what makes life manageable. Right. It works that way. Get up in the morning, man. Line up at the door. Go get that chow. Come back. Have that cup of coffee. Go through count time. Uh, go to your work assignment or go to rec. You know what I mean? That routine every day grabs a hold of you. It becomes so comfortable. It's like a jacket that you just wrap around you. You bid to it. Yeah. And you, you just say, hey, you know what? This is comfortable enough. I can just do this. You turn your brain off and you just go through life like that. And then somebody comes to you and they say, you know what? I think you can get out. What do you mean I can get out? These people up here are telling me I'm never getting out. And you're saying I can get out? Are you crazy? This is Dr. Sharon. She's helped over 500 guys get out of there under that program. She stuck her neck out so many times for guys that have just abused it. I know of four of them that just went back. One of them's a three-time offender. Just gave it up again and went back in after she put her neck out for him. But she still keeps doing it. And seeing that person do that's what helped me keep my sanity. Because she believed so much more in me than I ever did in myself that she brought me up to her level instead of somebody knocking me back down to the one I was at. Thank God for people like that in life. I can't say I owe her because when I say I owe her, she says, you don't owe me anything. What you need to do is owe yourself. This is what I just told Eddie yesterday, you know, because... Like Eddie says, you know, his loyalties to the program. And it's like I tell him, no, Eddie, your, your loyalty is to yourself. That's right. Your loyalty is to yourself. And, and what I mean by that is you remain loyal to yourself. And when you're loyal to yourself, then that allows you to remain loyal to those who are loyal to you. That's right. But if you're loyal to somebody, that means that when they become disloyal to you, you're still going to give your loyalty to this, this entity mm -hmm. because you're in your mind, you're telling yourself, I'm loyal to this. And no, you are loyal to yourself. And if this entity that you are loyal to then becomes disloyal to you, it starts moving in a fashion that you don't agree with, then that's where you can cut your loyalty out. Like you, you agreed to a burglary. You didn't agree to a murder. Right. 
You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And and that is the line that I try to get kids to understand because all of us are like that. We'll we'll allow ourselves to cross our own lines that we draw on the sand because we're allowing other people to pull us across. Right. You well, that's, but that's that's the influence. Right. Like I said, when I was younger, I was hanging out with ex-Vietnam vets. You know, and as I look back, every single one of them were screwed up. These guys were over in another country. And the things that I heard about them killing people and the other stuff that they did every day, I mean, that was some nasty stuff. It's bad you know? times, man. And they didn't take care of them when they came back here. Of course not. They gave them a pension check and they said, you know what? Here you go. Here's your apartment. Do, do you know. And all they're doing is drinking beer, getting high, and hanging out every day. So if a young kid comes along, hey, you know what? They're more than happy to disseminate the information they got. And it's like that in life. The kids will, if they're not getting it at home, they will gravitate to whoever will give it to them. And I'm talking across a lot of borders that people don't want to talk about. I'm talking about these molesters out there that take advantage of kids every day. Okay? Dope dealers that take advantage of kids every day. You know, I'm, it, it almost sounds stupid, right? But what was Nancy Reagan's slogan? Just say no. Just say no. Parents need to teach their kids to just say no, but to do it in such a way as you're not being overbearing and saying you do this or. Because when you say do this or and you put consequences on it, most teenagers are going to just rebel against that and do the exact thing that you say don't do. I know I was like that, and I know a lot of kids that were like that. We don't need an overbearing authority figure. What we need are parents that love us and care about us and want to see the best interests in our life. And the way to do that is to be who you say you want me to be and not tell me to be who you want me to be. Because there's a, there's a fine line in that. My stepfather would always say, do this, don't do that. Right. And yet he was doing the exact same things he was telling me not to do. That. Hello. Okay. We have to be consistent. Man, kids are watching and observing. You know, it's kind of funny. I got three kittens in my house right now. They're always sitting and watching me. And I don't think them kittens are any different than kids. Because what they're doing is they're absorbing Okay, they're absorbing everything that's going on around them every day. Mirroring neurons. Yeah, that's what they are. They're learning in the process. It's it's how life works, because the child instinctively knows that it knows nothing, and that it instinctively knows that's what these mirroring neurons are: is to train the the untrained brain on how to function by watching more experienced beings out doing it. Right. So that's that the kid will just sit there and watch you like this here. And you think that the kid is dumb and just watching you, but the kid is processing. That brain is just moving. You know what I mean? There's a guy that I don't exactly agree with everything he says. His name is Dr. James Dobson. He started mm -hmm. what was called Focus on the Family. He has had a book out years ago. It was called The Strong-Willed Child. What he says in that book that I agree with is that 
We will get the building blocks for everything that we believe in by the time we are five years old. Once we're five, it's harder, right? Mm -hmm. Dr. Sheeran says it's about nurturing and what is it? Nurturing. Uh, it's kind of weird. This goes into a thing called Maslow's theory of hierarchy and needs. Okay. There's, there's levels of what we need. Mm -hmm. All right. The basic level is food, clothing, shelter. Okay. But as we go up this hierarchy in his hierarchy, our needs are being met. The top part of it is called self-actualization. Now, Maslow himself said that he only knew that one man in, in, in existence that he ever believed self-actualized. And I think he said that was Einstein, I think. Don't quote me on that. But the thing is that when you start thinking along these tiers, if I'm not having one of these tiers met, I'm going to go find it somewhere. Right. That's why you get so much homelessness. And from being a homeless person, it's habitual, like anything else in this life. I didn't start out thinking, oh, I'm going to live on the streets. Right. I started out thinking, I don't want to go home. I don't want to face the consequences of being late. I don't want to hear my stepfather ragging on me and all this other crap. And my mother sitting in the background, letting him do what he does and not sticking up for me. So I would just rather not go home. And those times became longer and longer and longer. Until I was staying away for weeks. I was eating, stealing out of stores. Hmm. And every once in a while, somebody felt sorry for me and they would give me something to eat. You know, you talk about burglary. It was easier for me to get somebody to let, feel sorry for me. They would let me in their house. While they were making the food, I was scoping the place out. Mm -hmm. I knew what valuable stuff was. A ring here or a watch there or something like that. Right down to the pawn shop, you know, but these were these were the habits that I formed over time. The habits you form over time become what controls you so if you if you work with the kids and just show a little patience and kindness and love and be a solid role model. From the time they're born up through that time before they're five. Because see, five is what? That's getting out now. Now we're taking them to school. They're getting into the outer environment. They're taking in even more stuff, right? So now they're not so much focused on the home life as they're focused on all this other stuff that's out there. So you need to solidify the home before they're five. And it has to be that place that whenever they think about it, it's the place they want to return to. Instead of, in my case, it became the place I didn't want to go. See? Them little kittens in my house. If they grow up in my house and I open the door up and let them out, where are they going to come back to? Yeah, they're going to know where to come to. That's right. Unless you beat them. No. I'll spank their butt if they poop on my bed again. But I got them potty trained now. So, I mean, after... Well, after it was over, what what happened? You guys are just standing in the house. You have two deceased oh. individuals in the house. So so they covered up the bodies with sheets. We basically started going through the house and taking stuff. Um, 
they had a Cadillac brome in in the garage. Nobody went and checked on the bodies to see if they were still. They were dead. They were dead. They were. I mean, they had them covered with sheets, but there was blood soaking the sheets. Yeah, it it was. We went into those rooms, okay, because we were looking for stuff. She actually had two pistols right there in the drawer next to her bed. So a thirty-two and a twenty-two. Did her no good. Nope, none whatsoever. You know, but the thing was, we got everything together, used their car, used Eddie's car, put whatever we could in them, and left. Mm -hmm. Um, Pat and Eddie, Pat and Eddie, yeah, Pat and Eddie went out the back door. Me and Donald went out the front door. They didn't lock the back door. That's later on, I found out that's how the neighbors, somebody from where these people worked at, called in and said they didn't show up, neither one of them. They went checking the house. When they went to the back, the door was wide open. They walked in and found the bodies. Very next day. We took the cars out to the other side of town where Eddie's car died at, his Toyota. So we went through a bunch of crap. They, they took the Cadillac, took the stuff back to Eddie's, Eddie's apartment, Came back out. I'm trying to remember. I think Donald stayed at the apartment. Eddie came back out and he got me and Pat. I think that's what it was. It's, it's hard to remember those details because it was like. But what's going through you? I mean, are you. I want to get away. Is this on your head? As yeah, far I'm scared as to death. That these bodies are still there. and, and Yeah, I'm scared to death. I'm like in shock because it's like. No, no. All I can think about is go home. Just go home. Go to where your familiar territory is. Like I said, you teach that kid that home is safe. To me, Rochester was safe. Those streets were safe because I knew them. I knew them like the back of my hand. You're just trying to get to a comfort zone. That's it. Jacksonville is not it. I want to get out of there. Which is what I did the next morning. Pat and I got on a Greyhound bus and we left and went to Rochester. Donald said he wanted to stay. Is this already in the news by this time? Um, I don't think by the time we left, but Eddie sent his landlord to get his car and it was a cemetery area. His was on this side and he had parked the Cadillac on this other side because we took like a taxi back to his place. And when he sent his landlord after his car, his landlord was going by the spot where the Cadillac was at, and they'd already found the Cadillac. So the cops were all over this Cadillac. When he got home, he had dropped Eddie's car off, was watching the news, and they had the $1,000 reward for information leading to... Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was on there. And this guy said, hey, wait a minute. His car was there. This was the... He called in. He got the $1,000. And Eddie was something else because he went right in and gave a videotape statement and a written statement saying that Pat and I had called him from that house and said there was a party going on. You need to come over. And he says when he got there, they were dead already. Damn it, man. In the end, in the end, he had pled guilty. Pat pled guilty first. He got two mandatory quarters running together. He was the youngest at 16. Eddie went to trial. Pat testified against him at trial. 
the third day of his trial because of Pat's testimony, he pled guilty. But he was still facing the death penalty because he was 19 at the time. And he they considered him the ringleader by then. They violated the rules and put Eddie, me and Donald almost together. Yeah, somebody going upstairs. Okay, so almost together, and Eddie was begging us to take our deal so that they wouldn't give him the death penalty. They ended up giving him two mandatory 25-year-to-life sentences running consecutive, which meant it would be 50 years before he would be eligible for parole. 50 years. Donald got two mandatory quarters running together or concurrent, and a five-year um, charge for burglary running consecutive to that. So that means, should he ever be paroled, then he'll have to first stay in for that five-year sentence before he can get out. But the way it is now is if they parole you to that sentence, as long as you don't get a DR, you're getting out. And it's a five-year sentence under the old system, okay? He, uh, on five years, you'd do about 18 months and he would be out. Mm -hmm. But um, Pat and I left. We we got on the Greyhound bus and went back to Rochester. Um, all this crap happened. So next thing I know, uh, and I mean, look, we're so paranoid during the bus ride, because it's like a 30-hour bus ride mm -hmm. with all the stops and everything. We got to a place called Geneva, New York. It was dark out, and it's a little hole-in-the-wall spot off of G Lake Geneva. And Pat and I had got out to get something to drink, and we are sitting under this little tiki hut thing. Four cop cars came up and surrounded the bus that we were in. Mm. Why you're sitting at the Tiki Hut? Mm -hmm. We're about 100 feet away from it when we saw this. Both of us were ready to bolt into the woods. But we sat there. We're like, no, if we run... They're going to know you. They're yeah, see you. exactly. So we sat there. Turns out somebody had been smoking pot on the bus, and the bus driver called the cops on them, so they came to get them. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. But in our minds, they were there to get us. Of course. Yeah. All right. And life was like that for the next few days. And finally, man, I got so many people in trouble with the cops in the process. The worst one was a friend of mine, um, Bob Sexton. He's probably dead now. He had done time himself, like 17 years. He had a shotgun in his apartment that was unloaded but belonged to a friend of his when they came looking for me. Mm. So basically, their deal with him was extortion. Oh yeah, yeah. You Out get of the Chucky, gate, I already know. You get Chucky to give himself up, and we won't send you back to prison for this gun. That's right. Okay, that's got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. That's right. Um, it's just crazy how that kind of stuff goes. But that's the system, right? That's the system. So basically, it all comes down to this. 38 years in one day is what I did. I got a day after my 38th year hit. Donald's still there. Donald's 40 years now. Going on 40 years. He had opportunity to get out as a, a juvenile offender. He was up for resentencing. 
Somebody told him that because one box wasn't checked on his plea agreement that he could beat it. So he told the judge, I don't want to do this right now. They set it aside. And I guess you know, you know enough about the law that the evidence alone convicts him. That one check box don't mean crap. And now he can't get resentenced as a juvenile offender. He's stuck till the parole commission lets him out. Unfortunately, in 1990, Pat, at the age of 23, I think it was, was at a facility in South Florida. I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Dade Correctional? Dade? I think it was Dade. Guy ran in his cell and threw gasoline on him and set him on fire. Remember, Pat's labeled as the snitch out of the group because he testified against Eddie. The cops hit him with the fire extinguishers, but 85% to 90% of his body was burned. They said he looked bad when he walked out. He was like in shock, walked out the dorm, fell down in the grass outside the dorm. They hit him with the fire extinguishers, and the infection killed him. Eddie died of AIDS at the Rock in 1996. So that would make him, he was 19 and 83. 13 years, 32 years old. You were locked up when you heard this, or you found this out since you've been out? Well, it's kind of funny because I was at um, South Bay Correctional Facility after it opened up in 97. It's about 98. I used to write to a niece of mine, and just on the heck of it, I said, hey, look, do me a favor, look these guys up. I said, just go three numbers up from mine and three numbers down. My number is 096318. So, Go three up and three down and see see if you can find these guys. She found Donald. But she said, I can't find the other two guys. And then two weeks later, somebody from Tallahassee who saw on their database that she'd been uh, inquiring, inquiring about these two individuals sent her the information on them and told them what happened to these guys. And then I started meeting guys that had been there when this guy threw the gas on Pat. Um, I don't even know how to tell you how that made me feel because it was like, I mean, you've been there. It's, it's, you do that time and you just hope you're not the guy, you know, you hope you're not around that corner. Well, the, from the moment, from the moment your door cracks, you, you, you're making sure you're not that guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You, you get up, you lace your boots up, you strap up, you do whatever. Yeah. You know, you're conscious of everything that's going on around you. You're making sure that you don't bump anybody. You're making, you're just, yep. every action that you do through the day is to make sure that it's not something that can get you killed. That's right. And it's an awareness that, you remember we were talking earlier about getting out here and this just being a larger version of that. Right. But that's because of the mentality that we learned in there. Right. Okay. And I think the the better part of that is the awareness of life that causes me to appreciate the little things getting up in the morning in my own place. Okay. Feeding the cats, making a pot of coffee. You know what I mean? Um, sometimes I take a shower. Usually I take it the night before, but Sometimes I miss it because I'm so dang tired from work. I say, heck with it, throw an extra blanket on the bed and crash. I'll wash it tomorrow. Right. Um, Yeah. But then I go sit outside on my patio, man. 
I got a, I got a, a umbrella, three tier umbrella thing that's outside, and I got Christmas lights that are still on it, and a lamp that I found and I, I fixed up. It's a brass lamp. It's a nice lamp, right? Somebody threw it out. I took it and I cleaned it up and everything, and I got it hanging there, and it stays on all night long with those lights. And I just sit underneath that thing first thing in the morning, smoke a cigarette, you know, have that cup of coffee. I'm in that quiet yard. You saw my yard today. You know what I mean? And it's people don't understand that. I get up in the morning because I wake up four or five o'clock. I don't have no alarms. Right. Don't it's, need them. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's even I'm seven years. The door's now. still popping whether you're there or not. Right. Okay. And, it, and it'll be that way till the day I die. You right. Know what I mean, I will go back to sleep, but four or five o'clock, um, my eyes open. Right. So I'll get up, I'll make my coffee and I'll just go sit out in the back back there, you know, and, and I'll sit out there until the birds start singing. You know, and it's, uh, people just don't understand that I can't be inside anymore. I have to, even sitting here, I'll, I'll start, I got to get out. Right. You know. Um, and it's a blessing being able to go out there and do that, though. You even know? as limited as, as it is, you you still have the ability to, to, to go outside. Yeah. That's, you know... At, at Miami FCI, we had porches, you know, and you would have, you'd have the dorm, but then you had a porch that actually had a gate that would lock, but you could sit out on the porch with tables. Man, we'd be out on that porch all day long, because I wasn't a TV watcher. Right. So we'd be out on the porch just from the morning all the way till night, playing dominoes, yep. cards, pinochle. Yep. You know, when the gate popped, we'd go out and come back, sit back, you know, but... It it um the 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 most precious thing for me in prison was silence. That's that's the most elusive treasure that you'll find in prison. Because noises there always constant, in the background, constant noise. Yep. And every once in a while, you may be able to get up in the morning and go out to the softball field and and sit out on the bleachers, you know, and catch a little bit of quietness, just yeah. a little bit of just what we're experiencing now. Yep. before somebody else comes out there or, you know, whatever else happens. But that that calmness and peaceness is is what I, I thrive for now. Yeah. You know, I don't have TV. As you see, this is quiet in here. Yep. I, 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 I really greatly respect that peace, man. And I don't want drama in my life. I don't want nope. none of that stuff anymore, man, because no. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of that the craziness the craziness the it's, ignorance yeah the, especially the ignorance i mean i do not miss that um you remember we were talking earlier about that respect between cellmates right you know and it's like there's people out here that are still disrespectful you know um oh oh um well let's talk about that for a second let's talk about how how did you cope with being incarcerated for how long? 38 years. 38 years to come out here and deal with disrespect out here because it's a whole different world mm. inside. Well, see, the thing is, that's where the blessing of that corrections transition program comes in at, okay? 
Dr. Sharon's a lifelong criminal psychologist. She's mm -hmm. worked with individuals like us all her life. Okay. So she has a great understanding of it. That's why she took on the role that she has as the director of that program over 27 years ago. I would love to have her on the show. Oh man, what? Listen, Doc, Doc will take you up the road and down the road. Okay. She, she knows her thing. I let her analyze me. And the thing is that, okay, so like, you know how they used to call the, the left and the right, and they would call them the bleeding hearts? Yes. Okay. So she would be considered a bleeding heart. Okay. Because. Bleeding her, heart liberal. Yeah. Well, her rule in life is that everybody, everybody, I mean, even you and me, right? As, as dudes that did time, we learned there's a line you draw, right? The rapists and and then and and, and, the, and the baby killers, they're at the low rung of the ladder, yeah. right? Uh, 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 any kind, any kind of um, deviant shit, right? You know what I mean? If you right. have a deviant mind, you're you're gunning women down, you're right? Exactly, doing any kind right. of crazy stuff. Right. Yeah. That's the low rung, you know. Yeah, me, I can walk around in prison with my head up, right? I got two counts of murder on me, man. Right, don't fuck with me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's the persona you learn to put on, right? You ain't even got to say it. Right. Because dudes don't never want to find out whether you actually did that or not. Right. They're not willing to, well, there's one every once in a while, but most dudes are not willing to step over that line. Mm -hmm. Dudes talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. So in this program, what Doc tells guys is, I understand that you had these tools that helped you to get from this part of your life to this part of your life. But guess what? This is where your life is going. Mm -hmm. You need to envision that and you need to embrace it. And in the process of embracing it, you need to recognize what you can keep and what you need to discard. Mm -hmm. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you take these classes that are going to give you the tools that you need so that when you step out there, okay, you may not have been out there for 35, 40, 45 years. But your mind's going to be on the process. Now, that's what Tampa's the best for, though, okay? From any other town in this whole state. Is that there is a system set up. Is that we leave Everglades once we're paroled. And we're paroled to no community outreach for a year. They already have six halfway houses dedicated to just guys from our program. And he's building more right now. Okay. They know what we need. And it's all our guys. Mm -hmm. So just like when I went into that program in 2009, I was taught that first I'll take classes. Then I'll become what's called a co-facilitator. I'll take the class and learn how to give the class at the same time I'm taking it. Right. And then I become the facilitator who teaches the class. That's exactly right. Okay. And it's like that at Noah's house. I come out as a fresh guy just getting out after all those years. And there's a guy there that I'll know, like my friend Taylor. Taylor said, hey, dog, what's up? This is what you need to know. Takes me through the steps. And it's like that for every guy from our program that gets out. Somebody's there to help him That's right. along the way. That's what we're building here at Coming Home Coalition with Ink the Ink. It's, so that is the right way to do it. Yeah. Because <clears throat> like the issue that I'm having, that I'm seeing out in Pasco County is there's there's no leadership out there when it comes to reentry. You got uh, these organizations that are just really kind of just sitting around, just waiting on a phone call. For, for somebody to call them and say, you know, hey, I'm sending a guy over to you. 
there's nothing in place to strategize returning citizens to be put in a place that they can then facilitate their own uh, programs in a yeah. sense. Yeah. And and my whole aspect that I'm trying to push is the fact that you guys need to get out of our way. Yeah. Let us come in here and handle our own as we're coming out. That's right. Because nobody is going to understand how to handle us. Like nobody do. Exactly. Nobody could handle me coming out other than me. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to get this this uh this this county to understand is that they're thinking that because Pasco County took over the jails, they took over all the reentry. So everything is now being formed by the county. So you're gonna have a government ran reentry program. And I told and I cut the guy off and I'm like, that'll never work. It don't matter how much money you put into it, it don't matter how much effort you put into it, it will not work because I will never trust a government entity to sit here and, and think that they can rehabilitate me. That's right. No matter how bad I want to be rehabilitated, I would never trust the same lion that bit me. Yep. Who would? No. So it will never, never work that way. And that's that's where coming home coalition comes in to know, you know, I mean, we're we are... their biggest assets. Okay. It's not just that we've been there, done that. All right. <clears throat> what I'm saying is this, I'm convinced. It's not just convinced that it sucks being in prison because it sucks being in prison. Mm -hmm. The normal person, if they had to go through for a week, what we went through Day after day, month after month, year after year. Twenty minutes. Right. They would snap. Okay. It's not just that though. That's not what deters me from going back. Right. I have this appreciation for life now. Amen. And that's what I want everybody out there to understand. Don't give up your appreciation for life. Okay. Amen. And I want to take one step back here. If there's anybody out there that's listening to us right now. And you're in this county, Hillsboro, and you have a loved one that's about to get out of prison or incarceration. Understand that there are tools in place. What he's talking about, Pasco County, Hillsborough County does have in place. All you have to do is go see one of the resource officers at the Hillsborough County Jail. They will set them up with free medical coverage for a year and food stamps for at least six months to a year depending on when you get a job and how much you make it. There's about a six-month assessment period on that, on the SNAP program. But they can get that. There's halfway houses and programs all over this county that will accept individuals. If you want to help them, then Google that. Look for that. And you'll find there's a lot of them. Now, I'm saying this because... He's right about a lot of other counties with these programs and this government-run crap, okay? It's a bureaucracy. It always comes down to the bureaucracy and how they run these things. And we understand it enough from being in there to know that it doesn't work. Even the prisons they have now in the state of Florida that they call incentivized, mm -hmm. okay? <laughs> they're not all they're cracked up to be. No, they never are. It's a, it's a public hoax. Well... I mean, okay, so in anything, I got to say this. It comes down to the individual. You said, how did I do all that time? Or, and then come out here. 
I came to a point where I said, I got to do give and take. I don't like it, but I got to do give and take because this is what I want. Now, what do I got to give and what do I got to take to get from this point to this point? Okay. I had to come to a point where I said, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about me. I was a security orderly for classification, the colonel and the wardens for the last three years I was in. I had the most respected position or wanted position where I worked in the visiting park, mm. the security hall, admin and all that. Big money jobs. Okay. All right. In this case, it's the hustle. Right. Okay. But one thing they knew about this kid, there was no dope coming in that institution. Wasn't no illegal activity coming around that spot. Okay. They had their allowances. There's always the acceptable hustle. Mm -hmm. You can do that, but they don't want this done. You know how the unwritten rules are, right? The convict code. They go by that too because mm -hmm. it makes their life easier. It's the give and the take. When you learn the give and the take, life becomes much easier. I got faith in God. I believe in God. That's the only way I kept my sanity. I told you earlier, I almost lost it in there, man. Man, I was going to bed crying, getting up laughing, mm -hmm. and doing a bunch of the both in-betweens. Hell, I do all that now. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I knew I was losing my mind. Yeah. It was only my faith in God that said, you haven't brought me through all this for nothing. There's got to be a purpose in all of this. Those people's lives had to matter, but my life matters also. And somebody else, else's life matters who my story will help in some way or another. And I don't know how, because we all interpret things differently. We're not all on the same scale, right? But even somebody looking at me right now saying, man, this dude did 38 years and yet he's sitting there with Thomas talking right now. And my life's great. It's not great, but it's great. It absolutely is great. Things come at you, man. My car is down right now. My Mustang. Don't but you know what? Me. I'm riding my bike 11 miles to work and riding home every day 11 miles. And you know what? I love it. I take my time. Well, I got to hurry a little to work. Yeah. But I take my time coming home, man. I'm enjoying everything I'm seeing, just like that place we went to eat. I pass by there every day. That's how I knew where we were going when you turned down in there. I pass by that place every day. So I'm going to go get a good nacho. Yo. Nacho. Nacho ordinary nacho. <laughs> nacho ordinary nacho. And they're nachos. Yes. <laughs> but the thing is that it's the mentality of the individual. In my case, That's right. I finally said, I got to believe in it, even though I can't put my hand on it. At my last hearing. That's right. They took eight years off my parole date, bro, and set me in effective. I had to wait nine weeks for that effective. Normally, it's only like two weeks and a guy gets out. I had to wait nine weeks for that effective date to get there. It was the happiest and the roughest time I ever did in prison. I can imagine. Because I knew I was finally getting out, but my brain wasn't processing in it. Well, yeah, well, that's the thing is that's the closest to the gate that you've been. Oh my God, what? They gave me, my whole time I was in, I was close custody. I'd been out the gate a couple of times early on because they used to trust us like that back in the day. But because of some idiots and mostly because DOC wanted control of the system, they changed all that up. 
Explain to the listener what closed custody is. Okay, so you have, well, now you have four levels of custody. When mm-hmm. I first came in, there was only, went in, there was only three levels of custody. You had close, medium, and minimum. Now they have what's called community custody. Um, you can't go to work release or any any type of place outside of a facility unless you have community custody now. It used to be minimum. Um, close custody means, and that's, they have housing order status, but close custody basically means I have to stay in the institution and I'm limited on any of the jobs or things that I could do in there because I can't be trusted. Yeah, you'll never go outside the gate. Never. And I and, and practically never did. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was early on, like I said, they trusted me a couple of times. But then after that, especially after 1990 and the Dilbeck crap, they they locked it down, bro. So literally, I was minimum custody for the last six weeks I was in. I'd never been that low. I'd never been medium. They dropped me from close to minimum just because of the time frame. And they wouldn't even let me step outside the gate with that. You had to have the gate passed from the colonel. And that was my boss, the guy I'd been working for. And I told him, I just want to be able to go out there. Let me go out and clean up the front. No, 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 we can't go through all that, blah, blah, blah. I was like, wow, really? All this time I've been doing all this hard work. And I kept that place spick and span, bro. Ain't nobody do a floor like I do a floor, bro. (laughs) Nobody. Okay? That's one of the things they loved about me. When you walked in that visiting park, well, that sucker shined like a mirror. People love the good, shiny floor, man. Yep. People love a good, shiny floor. So we're going to wrap up here, man. And um, I want to bring you back to talk about a part two and, and you going to prison now for for life <sighs> Yeah. At, at 18 years old. 18 you know? years old, man. Yep. So, I mean, that that's a whole different story in itself. But do you remember what the, the what are the victims' names? Charles and Ann. Charles and Ann. Yep. No, I've never let myself forget that. And they'll never be forgotten. Um, there was an old convict named Doug, Doug McCray. He's probably never going to get out. I believe he shot his wife and her lover, I think it was. Both in the head. But he made a, a statement back in 2009 that's always stuck with me. And he said that whatever you do in life, you need to, number one, remember the names of the victims of your crime. Because if you deviate from that, then you're deviating from reality. You're not an honorable person. And two is that you honor the memory of those victims by remembering them like that. And then you always put their names to what you're doing because that makes them worthwhile. He says, because to not do so means that they didn't mean anything. And don't nobody want to hear that. Because that's to say that their life doesn't have any meaning. And I'm, for one, would have to agree with him because I don't want anybody telling me that my life doesn't have meaning. Not after all I've been through. And that's what I'm going to tell each and everybody that I ever meet again. Just like that old Spanish couple I met the other day. To be able to help them the way that I did was just like, it made me feel good because I got them home, man. They were lost. They were less than a mile from their house and yet they were lost. I know how that feels. <laughs> you know, and wasn't anybody else paying attention to them. And they couldn't communicate with anybody because they're Spanish. They're Cuban. They don't speak English. Yeah, I know what that feels like. So to put the names to the victims is only right.
absolutely. And that's why I wanted to bring their names forward tonight. Um, rest in peace, Charles and Ann. And, and um, forgiveness comes in big prices sometimes, but it's it's always it's always a necessity for us to move on, move forward, and understand. You know, there's always the the topic of do murderers deserve to get out of out of prison? Hmm. You know, and for me, it's it's always a yes because I understand what prison is, and at least once, given one opportunity. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's I understand what prison is for one, and for two, you can do a lot more to honor those individuals out here exactly than you can be rotting away in a, in right. a cage. I'm doing you know? nobody any good sitting in there. I'm just wasting taxpayers' money after a certain amount of time. Right. And and after you burn the hand so long, it just turns into a crisp and it doesn't hurt anymore. That's right. You know what I mean? And then so, you don't care. Then you don't care. We've met guys like that. They don't and care if they ever when, get out. And then out. that's when they want to release you is when you don't care. Right. Uh, old Brooks old in the Brooks. Shawshank Redemption. You know what I mean? Well, Chuck, thank you so much for coming and opening yourself thank the you, way brother. that you did. I appreciate you, man. Absolutely, man. man we got this. These are heartfelt stories. Yep. Um, it's These aren't, you know, to boast about crimes. It's not to, it's to not. brag about. No. It's it's for to understand because our children are out here killing people on the drop of a dime. There's no thought process in it. There's no value in life. We're losing the, the morale of this country. It's so it's these stories that I produce and bring forward are are not only very traumatic for us because it brings back an experience in our life that opens doors to guilt, to depression, to to a lot of trauma in our lives. So I respect that holistically for anybody to open their heart and expose a lot of pain in their life for lessons learned. So this is why we do it. And I honor the men that come and talk about it because it's it's about saving our children's lives and, and also helping parents to recognize signs that their children are starting to go awry. That's right. And I'm a firm believer, like we go back, before you start looking at your child, the parent needs to look at themselves. That's right. If you see that your children are starting to go awry, you need to get with your spouse and say that this is what's going on. What are we doing? Are we right. being hypocrites? Are we chastising our children for the same thing that our children are seeing us doing? Is really coming into ownership because that's yep. these are the you got to be real with them. You got to be real with them. You if be you ain't one hundred percent real with them, they're gonna sniff it out and they're gonna buck against it, man. Absolutely. So with that, guys, we love you. There will be a part two coming up soon. Yep. But until then, you guys take care of yourself. Don't get caught up in this dilemma. And right. be your best self, man. We need love yeah. out there. We need good people. We need leadership right. in our communities. We the people, power to the people. It's about uniting our communities, bringing us together. Yep. This is why I will not commit another crime against my people. That's I will right. never sell another drug to nobody because I care about my American citizens. I care about humanity. And I now understand that even though that I may have not been directly affected or guilty of certain crimes. I still had a thought process and a decision that I could have just simply said no. And That's things right. would have been different. So A whole lot different. You guys take care. Stay blessed. We out.